Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, what a rich, profound, and meaningful expression of our faith and the reality that we have nothing outside of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you stir in our hearts tonight and every moment of every day to exalt you in a more meaningful and more apparent way in our lives that you would receive the glory in all that we do. God, may this time and this study in the book of Nahum be beneficial to us for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Well, evidently, I thought I had Bill snowed, but evidently I don't because he came up here and he asked you to be praying for me as I prepared my sermon uh, for the call to worship. So I got busy preparing and here we are. <laughs> I'm just kidding. James Bulger, a.k.a. Whitey, James Whitey Bulger, was one of the notor most notorious criminals in Boston. Uh, Whitey Bulger was a notorious gangster, a mob boss. He was guilty of murder, extortion, drug dealing, theft. Uh, theft so severe that he even stole a winning lottery ticket from a man and an entire liquor store. Not a pack of liquor, a whole store. He stole an entire store. I'm, I still try to wrap my mind around that, how, how that comes about. He avoided arrest until um, 1994 by working hand-in-hand -hand with the FBI. He was one of their informants. And so he worked to rat out the other guys, the other partners in crime, and his rivals in exchange for protection. When this partnership ended, he went into hiding. And since 1994, he had been in hiding. No one could find him. They looked all over the place. He found himself on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, but he remained unpunished for a life of cruelty and wickedness. However, justice was served in 2011 when James Whitey Bulger, at the age of 83, was arrested in Santa Monica, California. You may have seen that just a, a, in, the, in recent months. He has been tried and convicted for a lifetime of of unfathomable crime, murder, and destruction of people's lives in the city of Boston. The reality is that the wicked often go unpunished for years. When you consider nations, wicked nations, sometimes it goes on for generations. However, this does not mean that their wickedness will never receive its due. The reality is that we're confronted with the same type of theme, the same type of idea in Nahum. When we turn to the book of Nahum, the people of Judah are certainly experiencing these same feelings that many people in Boston would have felt. The, the feelings of, of wicked going unpunished. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Nahum. I'll give you a little extra time tonight to find Nahum. It's not as, as common as, say, Matthew or, or Romans that we often are in. But the, the people of Judah are experiencing the, these same feelings. 
God had used the nation of Syria to discipline them and to punish them, and it had been a trying time for them, and now they're daily reminded of the wickedness of the Assyrians as they see the lead city, the largest city at that time, Nineveh, a city that we're familiar with from the book of Jonah. And the question that had to be on their mind would be the same question that, that many would, would have regarding Whitey Bulger. Will his wickedness go unpunished? Will their wickedness go unpunished? Who's going to bring about justice? And so this question is lingering, and it lingered among the people of Boston for years until finally justice has been served. And the same question has lingered in the thoughts of the people of Judah for years. And then Nahum comes on the scene. Chronologically, we understand and we know Nahum comes after Jonah. It's two books after Jonah in the Old Testament. Assyria had conquered Israel in about 722 B.C., and now Judah stood alone. Assyria was a cruel and, and brutal empire. Historically and, and archaeological evidence points to gruesome, gruesome punishment by the nation. When they would come in and they would conquer cities, it was, it was unfathomable, it was unspeakable in this context. The things that they did to the people, the things that they did to the men, the women and the children of the cities, they would come in and entirely wipe out a city. It was desolated. The Assyrians were a dreaded and a fearful nation. So in light of this, the people experience this. The people know this. They know how dreaded they are. They know that Nineveh is a great and a mighty city. So Nahum writes this oracle, as he describes in, in verse 1 of chapter 1, the oracle of Nineveh. He writes this in 7th century B.C. about the destruction of Nineveh, the biggest fearful city in Assyria at that time. And he writes that it will be destroyed, that God will destroy this city. And lo and behold, as we know, God is faithful to his word, and Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. The Assyrian Empire was soon conquered by an empire that was soon come to be known as the Babylonian Empire. Before we get into the actual text for tonight, I think there's two background thoughts, backdrops, that we need to understand in the book of Nahum before we encounter and, and jump into our study for the next four weeks. First is this. In light of, of what we know about Jonah, we understand that God's demonstration of mercy towards sinners in the past does not guarantee his continued demonstration of mercy in the future. This will be fleshed out in a few moments as we get into the text, but when Jonah preaches to Nineveh, what is Nineveh's response? When no, Jonah actually gets there, right? When he actually gets there, what is Nineveh's response? They repent. But this repentance was short-lived. About a century later, here Nahum stands and, and tells of their doom, tells of their destruction. So God is patient, as we'll see, but God is also just, and God will punish sin. So we need to keep that in mind. Second thing that we want to keep in mind as we study Nahum is it's interesting in this book that this is the only prophet whose message contains no call to repentance or warning of discipline to God's people. Why is that so? Because they have already been disciplined. The, the point of Nahum is not to say, I'm going to discipline my people. The point of Nahum is to say that I will exact wrath and judgment upon the wicked. You have been punished, and I'm going to punish the wicked. And take comfort in who I am. Take comfort in my person and who I am as God. Knowing that I will execute judgment and justice on the wicked. Nahum's message is that God is a just God, a righteous God, a holy God, 
that will punish the sins of the wicked. Join me as we read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1 in the book of Nahum. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. The problem that we face as imperfect, sinful humans is that we often confuse God's patience with sin for him failing to punish sin. So when we look and we see the wicked prospering, and we look and, and see the wicked going unpunished, whether it's a wicked nation or whether it's people in our own personal lives that, that we experience, and we see the frustration of that, we, we confuse that and we ask the question, a natural question, God, why are you not punishing them? God, why are they not receiving their due? God, God why am I not prospering like they're prospering? And we get misfocused and we become disheartened. We become discouraged. Our faith struggles. We even can grow callous to the word of God. And so our sinfulness creeps in and, and other people's wickedness and our feelings of injustice grow and they loom larger than our God. That we, we, our gaze is shifted off of how glorious and how awesome God is and upon the deeds of the wicked. So God leads Nahum to write this to the people and we have it today. These first, uh, first six verses, chapter, or verse 2 through 8, are a hymn that declares who God is. The question is why? Why begin like this? Why do we begin with who God is when, when it's such a fearful and dreaded message from Nahum? The, the truth is this, is that we need to understand that biblical faith begins with and is steady by the knowledge of who God is. Biblical faith begins with and is steadied by the knowledge of who God is. Our knowledge of who God is brings comfort in the midst of trials. It brings comfort in the midst of seeing the wicked prosper. See, these verses, these first eight verses speak nothing of Nineveh. Other than the introductory verse, the oracle of Nineveh. Outside of that, in this hymn, there's nothing spoken about Nineveh specific. It's about God and his greatness and who he is. It directs the attention of the people of Judah and us today upon who God is, rather than the situation, because we must keep our minds fixed on who God is. There's four truths I think we need to remember about who God is from these verses. First is found in verse two, and it's that God jealously loves his people. God jealously loves his people. That means if you're in here tonight, 
and you're a Christian, that means that God has a jealous love for you. He has a jealous love for you. We understand Exodus 20, verse 5. God describes himself. He says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14. God says, you shall worship no other God. For Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Jealousy can be a, a, a virtue or a vice. It can be a virtue or a sin. It, it depends on what drives it, what motivates it. If, if it's motivated by wanting something that someone else has or, or someone else, you, you, you want the glory that someone else is receiving or the acclamation that someone else is getting and you're, you're jealous of what someone else has, that's driven by sinfulness. And it is therefore a sin. But when jealousy is driven and motivated by love, it's a virtue. I have a jealous love for my wife. If there's any man in here who treats her the way or looks at her the way that I can as her husband, then I will be jealous. And I will exact some wrath that I can exact. <laughs> See, when jealousy is motivated by love and by covenant commitment, it is not sinful. What drives God's jealousy? What drives his jealousy? Is it because somebody else has what he doesn't have? Is it because someone else is more powerful than he is? Someone else looks more glorious than he does? No. What drives God's jealousy is when sin enters into the relationship that he has with his covenant people. When sin hinders and breaks that relationship, then God responds in jealousy. He carries out his love with wrath and vengeance. Speaking of jealousy, Philip Ryken says, there is nothing God guards more jealously than his love for us and our love for him in the covenant. J.I. Packer says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. What is so precious that God is described as a jealous God. His holiness. The holiness of his people. When sin enters into that relationship, he will respond with a fierce, protective love for his people. And he will go to whatever measure is necessary to purge us of that sin. Judah had been punished. And now, he will punish Nineveh. There's two sides of the coin that we see of God's jealousy. One is, is his vengeance towards the wicked. His vengeance towards the wicked. He is going to enact vengeance towards Nineveh. What's the other side of the coin? As he does that, as he carries out his wrath and punishment to Nineveh, what also happens? His people are saved. His people are saved. So two sides of, of the coin is that his vengeance is enacted and his people are saved. Listen, we can take great comfort in the fact that God zealously loves us. He zealously loves us. He is fiercely in love with us. His love is poured out upon us. It's been demonstrated on the cross. We sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Praise the Lord that we have seen his love displayed on the cross. Does his jealousy over you not amaze you? 
Does it not amaze you when you consider your sinfulness? When you look in the mirror, as do I, and you're confronted with your frailty, you're confronted with your shortcomings. When you know the motives of your heart, and you see the sinfulness of your mind. It's a dark place, isn't it? It's a dark place. But yet, in light of that, we have this understanding that God is a jealous God over His people. He's a jealous God over His people. He desires that nothing come and break that relationship that He has with you and I. And in this case, Nineveh will be the recipient of His justice and wrath. May we find great comfort in God's jealous love over us. The second truth that we find here is in verse 3. Verse 3, Nahum writes, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. The second truth is that God is patient, but he will punish the guilty. God is patient, but he will punish the guilty. It reminds us, it may, it may remind you, it may or may not, I guess. Exodus 34, the, God speaks a very similar statement. When you start reading, does that sound familiar? God, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. It should. There's two places in Scripture that a very similar statement is made. Listen to these. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, here's what, here's what it's written. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty. In Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will by no means clear the guilty. What is the difference between those two verses and the verse we have here in Nahum 1.3? Look at your text. What is the difference there? Nahum says the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Do you see the middle portion that's different? Exodus and Numbers say the Lord is slow to anger. Nahum says the Lord is slow to anger. Exodus and Numbers then say he's abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Nahum says he's great in power. What is it, why is the difference here? The, the difference is the context. The difference is who God is speaking to. See, in Exodus and Numbers, do you know who God's speaking to? He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to his people. He says, listen, I am slow to anger, but I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm forgiving iniquity and, and transgression. There is love and forgiveness in the Lord for his people. But when he addresses the nations, when he addresses Nineveh, who he's about to unleash awful wrath upon, he says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The redneck paraphrase is, the Lord's been patient, he's about to bring it. He's, a, he's powerful, he's almighty, it's coming. See, we understand and we know, we know God in a different way. We know the love and we know the forgiveness that's in God. 
We know that, yes, he is great in power. Yes, he is highly exalted. Yes, he is omnipotent. He is a mighty God. And there's no one, no one who can withstand his wrath and his vengeance. But we also know the forgiveness and the love that's been displayed in the cross. And we know what it means and what it's like to know that Christ hung in the balance, that Christ absorbed the wrath of God, that he stepped in between the wrath of God and us. We know what that's like. Nineveh had no clue. Nineveh was about to experience the full wrath of God. In Romans 2.4, Paul writes this. He says, do, not, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is a significant thing. We jump and we understand in Nahum, we understand the Old Testament, that God says, hey, I, I am patient. I am a patient God. I am slow to anger. And I'm abounding in steadfast love and forgiving of iniquity and transgressions for those who know me. But for those who do not, you're storing up wrath. And we have the same understanding. It carries over. It's open in the New Testament. That we have the understanding when Paul makes his case and he, he makes that, that almost legal argument in Romans. And he, he shows that all men are in need of God. No one is without excuse. We all stand guilty before God. He says, do you, do you presume upon the kindness of God? Do you take it for granted? That, do you not know that, that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? It's intended to lead you to salvation? That the plea that we would make with you in here tonight that are unbelievers don't take the kindness and the patience of God for granted. Don't presume upon it. Don't count on and say, God has been so good to me and he's been so merciful to me. That means he's going to be merciful and kind and good to me for the next 100 years. Don't presume upon it. The kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance. And so our plea for you, if you're sitting in here tonight and you are an unbeliever and you have not confessed Christ, our plea to you would be to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus tonight. Turn from your sinfulness. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. He goes on to say the last part of that phrase. And this is why, this is why that's our plea. Because the truth is, in both instances, that the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And the question is, how can that be true? How can that be true? Is it not contradictory of the gospel? How can it be true that he would say, the guilty will not go unpunished? Yet we have eternal life. You see the beauty of the gospel, don't you? The guilty won't go unpunished. The difference is, if you're in here tonight and you're a believer, your guilt was punished in Christ. When the Father who made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, love and justice meet upon the cross. 
And we see a glorious display of who God is. The third point is in verses 3 through 6. God makes an incredible statement of his sovereignty. So the third truth is that God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. Listen, listen to the end of verse 3 down through 6. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Gives you a great, grand picture of who God is, doesn't it? The clouds are dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Could you imagine standing on the beach and rebuking the sea? People would laugh you back to Kentucky. But God rebukes the sea. He reprimands the sea. He makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. and The hills dissolve. Do you remember Exodus 19? Do you remember Exodus 19? Exodus 20, God speaks the Ten Commandments and gives them to Moses. Moses is, is on Mount Sinai receiving the, the Ten Commandments. When Exodus 19, it describes God descending and the mountains shaking and the clouds ascending. And, and it's just a glorious picture of who God is and his might and power as he descends. And here we see the same thing, that the mountains shake. They quake because of him. The hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. It's upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who? Who can stand? The implied answer is what? No one. No one. Who can endure the burning of his anger? No one. His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken up by him. Our God is a sovereign God. And he's not just sovereign over his people. He's not just sovereign over one specific geographic location. He is sovereign over all that is. God is the sovereign creator of all things. And again, we find great comfort in that. The fourth truth we see tonight is in verse 7. That the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. The truth we see is that God is good. And he is a refuge for his people. He is good and a refuge. In light of God's jealous love for you, in light of his commitment to punish the guilty, and in light of his sovereign rule, you and I know that we can come before him as our refuge. Because he is good. He is good. Words of immense comfort. Yes, the Assyrians were pressing down. Yes, the Assyrians were brutal. They were dreadful. They were to be feared. Yes, there are wicked around us. Yes, people are, are carrying out injustice. Yes, you have to endure punishment from, from in times that you shouldn't. But God is good. And God is a refuge for those who seek Him out. Listen to Psalm 37, 9, 39 through 40. It says, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. They take refuge in Him. You see, the call from God is to take refuge in Him. He is a mighty and a sovereign God. He loves His people. He has a jealous love over His people. He is a good God. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. This is not merely an intellectual knowledge. 
It's not just knowing the facts of, okay, yeah, they know. Yeah, okay, yeah, they're mine. It's a, a care. It's an active care for his people. It's an intimate knowledge of his people. That we take refuge and find comfort in who he is. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? We look at these passages, these verses, what does it all mean? It means that in the face of calamity, in the face of suffering, in the face of injustice, we look to God and His nature as our comfort. I, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what kind of injustice you're meeting. But I would appeal to you to look to God for comfort. God will punish the sins of the wicked. But we must fix our eyes on Him. Not on situations. Not on perceived injustices. Not on the prosperity of the wicked. When we fix our eyes more on what we don't like about what others are doing or what others are doing to us, we lose sight of who God is. We must fix our eyes on who God is and take refuge in Him. He is patient. But that does not mean that He will not judge. He's a patient and a loving God. Amy's going to come up and, and lead us in a, a time of song and, and meditation as we close out. And the question is, what situation are you currently frustrated with when you think about the, the perceived prosperity and success of the wicked? Maybe it's a person at your school. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's some kind of injustice you see. Maybe it's a whole nation. Maybe it's our culture. Maybe it's the injustice of abortion. And you're thinking, God, just bring about justice. God, how long will the wicked prosper? Our God is a mighty God. He's a mighty fortress. And these verses call us to fix our eyes upon Him. Fix your eyes on God and who He is. Consider the words of this song as we close tonight. Consuming fire, burning holy flame with glory and freedom. Our God is the only righteous judge, ruling over us with kindness and wisdom. We will keep our on you we will keep our eyes on you a mighty fortress is our God a sacred refuge is your name your kingdom is unshakable with you forever we will reign our God is jealous for his own none could comprehend his love and his mercy and our God is exalted Forever he is worthy. We will keep 
Let's pray. Father, we...